UX Podcast Episode 284. You're listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axbo and James Roy Lawson. With listeners in countries and territories all over the world from Singapore to Oman. Um, before we jump into today's show, we're going to share with you all a new thing we're doing. A brand spanking new thing. Which is kind of an old thing, but it's a new thing. We're still recording the show, but we're going to be doing um, our interviews to a live audience in collaboration with Ambition Empower. Yep. And uh, Ambition Empower is a continuous learning program for professionals. Uh, so uh, Ambition Group is offering this as a year-long learning experience where you can uh, decide on tracks to follow and... Uh, there are different topics for those tracks and there is something to do every week and you decide how much you want to do. And one of those tracks is now UX Podcast. I actually thought you were going to say one of those tracks is you, Pat. <laughs> one of those tracks is also me. Yeah. So I, yes, I have been uh, since last year also doing a design ethics track uh, within Ambition and Power. Uh, and you'll also find Kim Goodwin, uh, Chris Nossel, uh, and Susan Weinschenk as well uh, doing tracks. And <laughs> more to be added. There is. And so far, I think all of the tracks are actually people we've had on the show. So it's a it's a really good sim is it symbiosis? Is that what you say? Symbiosis. Symbiosis? When it's kind of two things growing together or yeah. merged together? Maybe. Oh it's it's great fun. Yeah. So there'll be a link um you can search for Ambition and Power. Um and if you do sign up then use the code UX podcast because you will get a discount. There'll a be quite a substantial one if is. I may say so. There'll be links <laughs> In the show notes, but you can always search in Google if you, um, or in a search engine of your choice, if you um, can't find the show notes. Today, Pad. It's a link show. A link show. And those of you who are familiar with the podcast will know that what that means is that Pear and I, amongst all the millions of articles that we read constantly to keep ourselves up to date with what's going on in the world of design and UX, we've pulled out two that we particularly liked or particularly sparked our brains into action. Something to think about. The first one out is uh, Colin Wright's newsletter, I think, is the one you found. His newsletter is called Brain Lenses, and the article is about additive bias. Correct. And the other article we've got today um, is uh, Mobile UX Trends, the Current State of Mobile UX, which is an article um, that was published, um, actually it was published last spring, wasn't it, on um, yep. Baymard? Um, Baymard Institute, yeah. Yep. They have this f section with free UX research that they publish, it's really good. So let's start out with additive bias. What is that? Is that something people should know what it is, James? Well, first of all, yeah, like you said in the intro, um, this article is um, Additive Bias by Colin Wright, uh, which I did pick up from Colin's um, Brain Lenses substack. Um, Colin himself is a, is a podcaster, like us, um, an author, like you, um, but he's got 
four podcasts per four podcasts um oh that's a lot yeah. <laughs> that is a lot. yeah it is quite a lot i mean i six enough time doing one i have no idea how you do four how do you keep track of that <laughs> I, I who, who am i today we have a big you have a big team helping you i think um and colin is my name uh, is his um handle on twitter Oh, I was like, what? That's not your name. <laughs> no, I know. James is my name, but Colin is my name, is Colin's handle. Oh, no, this is going to be all right. No, oh, okay. Anyhow, um, so it's, um, yeah, this one, uh, this article. So um, I'll read the first um, paragraph from it. Um, There's some evidence that when presented with a problem, we'll tend to favor solutions that involve adding something new over solutions that involve the subtraction of some existing element. So um, he also says it's not that we have problems processing or understanding solutions that involve subtraction, um, taking things away, but we find the suggestion of adding things more obvious. But Colin goes on to say that um, this effect um, appears to be amplified when problem solvers are under heightened cognitive load. So you know, you've got more on your mind, you've got more going through your head. Um, and people in uh, one of the studies referred to, they could still um, see value in subtractive solutions. But interestingly, they were less likely to see or notice the shortcomings in um, additive um, solutions. So they're kind of blind to the the downsides oh, yeah, of adding right. stuff, and they were actually, yeah. but they could, they were aware of the downsides of taking away stuff, um, which is very okay, interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, mm. um, al- that's also alluding to how I mean, if if we're not working, sometimes we say that we need to go for a walk, we need to spend some time thinking for problem solving, uh, but it's not visible work, which is why we are wary of actually doing that type of work because people will be start complaining. What are you really doing there? You're, it's, I'm thinking, but f- thinking isn't even valued. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- th- things um, things you can't see are, uh, are not valued as much. Mm-hmm. But it, it goes on to explain some of the, um, um, the reasons maybe behind it. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll read another quote from it. Um, we may be biased towards adding more things, more resources, more, resu- more rules, more habits, more responsibilities, rather than the opposite, which in some cases could worsen the problems we're trying mm. to solve. And the, the explanation for that is, is the um, uh, sunk cost fallacy, you know, where you, you've basically, um, you keep investing in things you've already invested in rather than limiting the losses and walking away from something that's not working. Um, mm. But, but I'll, I'll add to that and say that I think this, you know, you've, You've got situations, in situations where um, things already exist, then it's a system that already exists that's yeah. supporting an existing solution. So um, not only is there a sunk cost fallacy, but there's, there's like a degree of protectionism. People, people want to protect the known and they add to what's known rather than remove it and enter the unknown. So connected to what you were saying about visible and not visible mm. power. I mean, mm. we, we have whole systems that are built up, but maybe over a, a long period of time, people's jobs are around the existence of certain things. And then if you come with a suggestion, which is remove it, mm. then you know, people might go, oh my God, yeah, but if that's gone, then so does my job. Or like, you know, what am I going to do? Or what does that mean for this? Or we've got how do you How do you measure that? I mean, because 
if previously you've been measured on how many things you produce or make in a day, how, if you start taking things away, that's like contra contrary to what even the belief system around what work is supposedly <laughs> is. Mm. So that's, I mean, that's if we can zoom out. So we've we're going on very different levels here. So on a larger scale, it could be entire systems that kind of get disruptive when you suggest that removing something were better, and then it gets potentially complex and difficult to remove the thing. But we can also zoom, we can zoom into to micro level on these things and say, okay, we could be talking about a word, a text, a, a drop down, a button, a kind of stage in a process. Mm. I mean, it, it could be a very small interaction, not just something on societal level. Um, but but in both situations, it's the same kind of um, um, bias that we, we aren't, mm. um, that we are biased towards adding rather than taking away. And I think it's... Um, you, and one that he goes on to mention towards the end of the article that um, an added organizational aspect to this is how um, additions get recognized by peers and managers and bosses. Mm. You said about producing. I mean, if you're producing stuff, and this is right. exactly connected to that, like if, you, if, you've, um, if you can show that you've added something, imagine your stand-up when you go, look, here's, here's our interface from last, the, you know, the last sprint, and here's our interface from this sprint and you've removed loads of stuff. It's mm. kind of, it, it also, I mean, even now when I'm describing it, it feels a bit deflating um, when you've taken stuff away. Uh, that actually makes me think, I did a talk many, many years ago now around how interfaces themselves are actually standing in the way of achieving my goal mm. uh, because it's positioned between me and my goal. Mm. So the more stuff I put between me and my goal, the, the harder it's going to be for me to reach it, of course. Mm. And that's the way I, I do believe we need to think about interfaces and our websites and our apps, that they are actually not, they're not, we, we intend them to be helpful. And then we start adding more and more stuff to be help, even more helpful. Oh, well, they could also use that and this filter and that button and this, uh, and, and this text. Uh, and in, in essence, we're just adding the complexity that they have to go through to get to what they want to do. Mm. So I think there, this one aspect is is communicating subtraction. That, that I think you're going to be, you, you're going to need to think about how you communicate to your organization, to your peers, the benefits of subtraction in a particular mm. instance. Um, but then on top of that, and this is this is um, Colin's closing sentence from the article. Um, it may be warranted to invest a bit of additional time and attention when we're in problem-solving mode, least we, um, or lest we overlook potentially better, less cumbersome solutions. Mm. So what he's prescribing there, recommending there, is that, we, like you said, we, we take the walk in the woods or whatever, we take that walk outside, or have more time allocated um, when we're problem-solving to actually you know, look at the things that are taking stuff away rather than always adding. I think we also we need to become better at explaining how adding stuff can actually be dangerous and how it can cost money in the long run uh, and be not not beneficial to the user. I, I think I, I have an example I think I mentioned uh, on the show before about sunk cost fallacy, where I've been in a project where we invested a lot of time in building a, a WYSIWYG editor close to what Medium's approach is, where you actually just you just edit in place on the screen, which turned out, as we learned when we were doing user tests, it's not very intuitive for a lot of users, uh, which meant that that investment, which was done by a guy who was obviously very proud of his work, uh, meant that it was partly non-intuitive, which meant that it would take longer for us to educate people in how to use it. We didn't have access to be doing that education, 
but also there were not enough people going forward that were able to uh, maintain what we have built because this, there was this one uh, obviously a genius because he, he built that thing really really well but not enough people actually knew how to also go into the same code and and maintain it if we had to change something or if we discovered bugs and we were dependent on him so we could build this whole case for actually if we this thing we built it's going to be a problem going forward so in so many years this is going to cost this much well the cost we put into it, let's scrap it and build what people expect instead, which also more people can build and maintain. Mm. So we had to build this whole business case around removing something that we had, had actually put a lot of money and effort into. Yeah, and that's because that's you, I guess you uncovered the shortcomings um, with, the, uh, with the existing solution, with the thing that was there, because you, you can see it, you can you can touch it, feel it, and yeah. mm. those shortcomings were not immediately obvious. And and the um, and you can, oh, I guess it's you can you can critique something that exists um, and and ignore it. Yes, yes, right. Um, yeah. It's, um, yeah, so that, that's your, that's a good point because this is really saying we we need to critique something that doesn't exist mm. yet because <laughs> we're we're saying that this thing that we want to build we may not we shouldn't build it because the alternative of not building can actually be more beneficial. <laughs> it's such a hard argument it is, to make. It's, it's, and, this is what, and this is the kind of arguments and thought process that really yeah. attracted me to this article, that it's, mm. um, you know, when you look at how you work and look at what we do, we, you can see really how we fall into this constantly and how mm. pulling yourself out of it involves many other biases mm. and problem situations and mm. challenging um, moments of communication and, and moments of discovery. Oh, th now I'm thinking of more and more people should put into their portfolios the things I'd never built. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Because, I mean, people sometimes ask me if I have examples of ethical design, and I say it can be really hard to give examples because a big part of doing the right thing is often removing things uh, and sometimes not even building things. So if you can have examples of stuff that you actually did not build, that would be a fantastic conversation starter. Yeah, the, a portfolio of stuff you scrapped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Mobile UX trends, the current state of mobile UX with 18 common pitfalls and best practices. And when we say current state, we mean actually the current state as it was described one year ago in April of 2021. Which I don't, I don't think is a problem, Barry, because the study mm. itself span over two years. Yeah. So, so it's yes, it's a year old, but it, it it covered a period of more than two years, and it's built on even deeper research than that. Exactly, and the the reason I chose it was because I was looking through it, and I realized, well, all of these things I see all the time, constantly, and they're so obvious. A lot of them have to do with accessibility as well. I realized without the word accessibility being used in the article, uh, but it's just it's it's when you read them, it's like, oh, that's so obvious, but I can also see why people ignore them or tend not to see them or actually think that they have solved something that they haven't. Should we give uh, a little background on the size and scale of this test, though? Oh, yeah. I do want me to do that for you. I, if you have it up. I think I it's it 12,000 oh, mobile the, usability scores, right? Yes, that's the kind of, yeah, the different points they have. But it was the, um, the study itself is 289 testing sessions, um, mm. including Think Aloud and one-to-one -one moderated uh, mm. lab sessions. Um, and those 289 sessions were span across um, 58 different um, you know, uh, company sites. 
Um, right. And across those tests, they found over two and a half thousand UX and usability issues. Right. <laughs> uh, which I'm not surprised. No. Um, no. And they put all this stuff on a beautiful scatter plot. So there's this diagram you can look at as well. Uh, but so, I mean, it's, there's an immense amount of work that has gone into this. Uh, and I love the way they've summarized it. Yeah, and that scatter plot is actually really interesting because straight away you can see how there are, so every dot in it is one of these websites for one yeah. of the 31, because they, all the 12,000 you talked about, they bunch them into 31 topics, so general topics, and then plotted each of the companies, uh, these 58 websites on one of these um, 31 topics. And um, you can see it's more red, it's more to the left, it's more to the poorer end of the scale mm. than the good end of the scale. And that's really obvious from the scar plot. Exactly. Uh, but what I love, of course, is the details uh, and looking at each of these 18 different uh, points that they have for what are what mistakes are these websites doing. Uh, they've actually also told us how many of these websites are doing are making these mistakes, uh, and they're they're uh, uh, broadly categorized into the homepage, the search, the on-site search, uh, forms, and uh, mobile site-wide features and elements. Uh, and and to be even more clear, this is about mobile e-commerce. Uh, but f just looking at these examples, I can see how they apply to not just e-commerce, but all the different websites out there. Uh, and I'm thinking even about um, government agencies and municipalities, which I work a lot with. I see the t same types of mistakes being done across the board. You're absolutely right, Pat. I mean, a lot of them are completely mm -hmm. applicable to all sites. Some of them, of course, are very much connected to, to products and, and e-commerce. Mm -hmm. but, um, um, but no, there's a huge amount of um, takeaways that you can apply generally. But but this first one is when when I looked at it, uh, it, it seemed obvious. But then I looked at the number of websites making this mistake. Uh, that's the highest number for any of these points. Is ninety five percent of mobile sites make this mistake? They have ads in primary areas of the mobile homepage. When you say uh, ads now, you you mean basically their their internal campaigns, I guess, taking up the, yes, exactly, the hero yes. image when you land on the site. Right, exactly. Mm. Uh, and this is something I mean, I, a lot of people complain about. It's so hard to get to the content when you have all these huge banners uh, right up in your face as soon as you enter a mobile website because they take, take so much off the screen, space from the screen. And it's, it's hard to get an overview. It's distracting. And sometimes they are full page or, or pop-ups or overlays, and it's not even obvious how you close them. Uh, which is, of course, a huge problem if you want people to actually start using your website. <laughs> well, this is really interesting, though, because this is this is something where a lot of so a lot of organisations are going to really love this real estate on the start page and think yeah. they really want to push, you know, their shiny thing or their campaign in you know in that space. Whereas what we're saying here is that it's it's counterproductive in many situations. What's interesting, I, I, what I still see uh, a lot of companies doing is that they demo all their websites in the desktop version. Hmm. Uh, whereas I see, and, and not, pe not enough people actually in, in leadership positions, I think, are aware of this, that, I mean, people don't use the desktop website anymore, really. 
It's so Ooh, much careful. So it's so much mobile. You, you know, you got you're generalizing, Pat. You got to be careful. Of course, I'm well, generalizing, but <laughs> it, the sh the shift, the shift from desktop to mobile is huge, yes. which is why we're getting these type of studies. Yeah, no, exactly, and I I, I agree with you. I mm. mean, if I look at mm. the analytics stuff mm. that I work with, then mm. I mean, even 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 in non e-commerce websites now so the public sector ones I work with, then the, the shift to mobile is continuing and it's, it's well beyond half of the audience now, even on those websites. Um, yeah, and that, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. And then the public sector websites, websites I work with, it's, I mean, I, I want to say it's over 80%. Uh, it varies depending the on what they are. I mean, I, I, mean, I work with exactly, yeah. somewhere, uh, the, you can tell that they're desk working people and mm -hmm. they use it as a resource while working at their desk. But, um, but you're right, I mean, it's, the, there's so many sites now. There's, I can't think of many sites I work mm. with where desktop is in the majority anymore. Mm. But my point is that uh, really, uh, in a project I've been working on and recently, actually, they decided that all demos have to be of the mobile website, which needs uh, means we installed mobile simulators on, on, on desktop <laughs> computers to actually give that simulation of this is the mobile website, this is what it looks like. Because too few people look at that. Most people look at their own websites on their laptop or on their work computer. Uh, so they're very familiar with that version of it, but they rarely go to their own websites in the mobile for some reason. But that's my experience. I'm generalizing again, James. <laughs> Good. I didn't have to tell you off that time. <laughs> but so that's that's one of my actually takeaways that uh, and recommendations from this is that try and demo both if you want, but don't ignore the mobile website in demos. It's so important to actually show that because in demos, it's also when you pick up on these types of mistakes. Mm. I mean, I, I, want, I want to say that don't ignore either. I mean, it, 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 desktop and mobile, I mean, we're, they, they, they are different and they often do have different, um, they lean themselves better to different tasks. Mm. And you might find that the desktop version actually brings more goal total task completion. Um, or oh, conversions yeah, or be. whatever. So it could be more valuable, the desktop one, than the mobile and one. And the reason Maybe. it could be bringing more conversion is because you're making all these mistakes. Yep, could be. <laughs> you see, it's a, it's com do you know, Pat, it's complicated, but, all this. But yeah, <laughs> so, if you're, so if you're not demoing the mobile website, uh, there will be fewer people to actually catch, catch up with that. Yeah. So uh, the second point is also about uh, the homepage. 57% of mobile sites fail to provide the full scope and the link text of suggested paths. This might be an e-commerce thing, but it's, uh, let's say you have a H&M uh, club store, whatever, and you go to see the women's selection. There's a men's selection and women's selection. Those are the two buttons on the homepage. What you don't see is there actually a small heading there as well, uh, new releases of shoes or something. And uh, so you think you're, you're clicking an ad or a banner for shoes and you're going to men's and women's, but actually it's already filtered for you. So it's not conveying that filter. So you, and you go, come to that page and it's like, oh, they're only, they only have two pairs of shoes in this store? That's weird, I'm gonna leave. I, that, I'm not interested in those. Oh, and so, so you're narrowing it down. So you're, you're basically narrowing your search down effectively or filtering things down too quickly. Exactly. So that you don't realize that you, you're part of a smaller scope than you were looking for. Mm. Okay. Definitely, exactly. Uh, so you get this tunnel vision and you don't know where, where am I in the scope of the full full site. And that, that point actually made me realize how we often talk about, well, people come to these websites from search engines often. And that's something that I've also experienced a lot is that 
when you come from a search engine into into websites and mobile websites, especially then, it's very hard to see where in the navigation am I, what filters are activated, uh, what am I really seeing in front of me. So I think a lot of time needs to be spent on on exposing. Uh, that type of where am I information. Uh, and doesn't that lead us nicely into the search um, uh, points of this report? I yes, mean, you said exactly. There's, there's what is there? There's, um, I think there's, there's at least, is it five or six different um, points to do with, with search? Um, yes. And I think this is connected to what you're saying there as well with, with scope, or rather, I suppose, understanding intent. Because mm. when you're coming from Google, that's a search thing in itself. So you want to interpret and understand the intent when you've gone from there to your website. Whereas a lot of these points um, on this section of the report relate to how you would maybe help people if they are going off track. So one of them, I've hijacked your article a little bit now, Pat, sorry. Um, so one, one thing would be um, alternative queries. So if, you, if you're mm. misspelling, so suggestions. If you're misspelling mm. something, that you make sure you would offer suggestions that had matches that were close to that one. Um, or in the case of scope, you would actually mm. match against categories rather than just products. So if you are mm. searching for shoes, then it wouldn't yeah. just match the, the products that include shoes in the name. You also would suggest, oh, look, we've also got this category. So you can allow people to to jump straight to the the category scope instead of just the um, the specific products. I, yeah, I really like these search suggestions because, uh, as I was saying before, all, all, almost all of these have to do with accessibility. The ones you mm. mentioned with autocomplete uh, and search suggestions, it helps people who who have a hard time spelling, uh, who don't know the right words. Uh, they are helped by the search engine helping them. Yeah. And, and also, the well, we've seen, you can see by testing that some people, well, search is very different from person to person. And when, you, when you're guessing a word, so you kind of, if you're locked onto a particular phrase for mm. a type of product, I mean, I have this problem in, in Swedish sometimes that if I'm thinking of a certain product, I might think of it in English, and then I need to find it on a Swedish website. And if I, if I sometimes just directly translate it, then I might not find any products whatsoever because it's not, it's not the right um, translation. So I'm really helped sometimes by fuzzy search and, and different suggestions and categories and stuff because it allows exactly. me to, mm. to, to play a little bit easier with the search mm. and, and get the real name for the category, the real name for the product in Swedish, which might be way off to what I, it might not be something I understand or realize. Um, so that's really helpful. There was actually an example there as well of the search engine. Uh, you put in face masks in the, in the search engine. They had a whole section with face masks but the search results were like double the amount that were in the section called Facebook. So they'd already done the categorization and sorting, but the search wasn't um, good enough to actually pick that out. It, it, it brought, instead brought a lot of content that wasn't uh, relevant to the search. And when you say face masks, it actually mm. meant kind of beauty masks, beauty products. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting one for, for yeah. recent years, how um, yes. uh, that's become a very complicated thing to search for at times. Such a great example, yeah. yeah. I like as well the, um, the, the point about um, um, making sure that um, your, your the search that you've performed um, persists on the results page. Yes, exactly, yeah. So, you, so, so, so that means that actually, this what you search for is still in the search box. So, if you want to change just one word or back up, uh, you can do that. 
it was surprising to see how many. And what was the um, what was that one? It's forty two percent. They d- they don't persist the search query, so they kind of maybe yeah. show what it is, but you can't you can't keep on foraging. You can't m- move on from your search result. It's a ba- dead exactly. end that you've got to go backwards. Um, and I, when I read that one, that was one of the ones where I went, oh yeah, that's annoying. <laughs> exactly. You you realize it's a, you see it so often that they don't do it. It's always like oh again. But then you realize, well, how easy wouldn't it be for everyone to just persist it? Yeah, hmm. which is a, it's a good point, Perry. When you can think about all these, hmm. I mean, I think the average, the average in general, if you look across all of these results, the um, I think wasn't it mediocre was actually the um, average result for all these fifty-eight yeah. websites. Um, there was none of them were were perfect. Um, at least hmm. in in US and European, I think it was, um, but none of them were were very poor or broken. They they hmm. pointed out that. But it's it's interesting that we've got. And you have all this stuff that is relatively simple to fix mm. that we we don't do it now it that yeah <laughs> now and i don't i don't think that's down to um lack of ability from designers or is it just is it that it's so i mean this has got like twelve thousand points or something so mm. you've got an element of it's so many things to think about and consider you you know, a team of people can't possibly consider them all at once. It could be, yeah, exactly. You're 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 dealing with so much; it's hard to f- fix everything. It always is, uh, but it's also about defaults and design systems, and not anticipating stuff within the design system, so that we build it the same way without realizing that we haven't listened to the feedback enough to to change the things that are in the design system. Especially mm-hmm. with larger organizations, you're stuck. Yeah. Th- these can these can be dangerous as well. Yeah. But sometimes I do think it's it's uh, also not realizing or not understanding. So I highlighted this 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 uh, specific point, uh, which is in the next section of forms, because it sort of blew my mind when I read it and surprised me. Although I'm frustrated by that because it shouldn't surprise me. I should be aware of these things. And this point is about, as I said, forms. And it, the way it reads is that 62% of mobile sites don't dynamically change form labels from above fields to left aligned in landscape mode. So it's you're filling out a form and uh, you tilt the, the, your phone to horizontal view uh, because what happens is, and the way it's explained in the article, is that people use landscape mode because the keyboard is larger. So it's easier for them to type. But what that means, of course, is that it reduces the visible part of the form by 73%. Which means that they they are suggesting here that so you can move the form label left aligned to the left of the form field, which means that you can actually see more of the form when when you have the landscape mode. Uh, so th- this was really interesting to me because I realized, well, yes, of course that makes sense because people have a hard time typing on phones and they want the larger keyboards. So people actually do that, but also there's this aspect of uh, if you're in a wheelchair, for example, and you have this uh, holder for your phone. Sometimes those holders won't allow you to change uh, from portrait to landscape and, and vice versa. So you have to decide on one. So if you have it in, in landscape, maybe because you're watching movies, and you then have to fill out a form, you will find a lot of people in landscape mode. That is something. So that, that actually made me think, well, so don't only look at your website in portrait mode on your phones, but also demo it in landscape mode and see what happens. I reacted to that one too, because you know the general advice is that you um, position labels to the left of form fields on English or Western um, websites um, on desktop, 
um, and then you would move them to above the form field on mobile. So this is actually highlighting the the, the critical responsiveness, so the, the breaking point of your site and when you switch, and that you should make sure that your form changes to a more desktop-like layout. Uh, maybe right. not exactly desktop, but you need to be thinking about where your breaking point, break points are, and there should be mm. one so that landscape switches the labels to mm. the left to increase... Uh, so reduce the the horizontal space it takes up to make room for the keyboard, which is interesting. I didn't think about that because I normally just kind of spit out, oh yeah, label should be above on mobile. Yeah, exactly. And th this is such a perfect example of of something where, uh, because I I know a lot of designers will will have a hard time accepting this because it's one of those, just because you would never never ever do something in landscape uh, like that on a mobile doesn't mean an insignificant number wouldn't. Exactly, and I think this is back, looping back to what I said about keeping everything in your head all the time. That yeah. we're often as designers expected to know what's supposed to be done, and you mm. put in situations where you you maybe can't do research, or you maybe you even can't find the research quick enough, or you're having to scramble to find an article somewhere on the internet to back up what you're you're trying to say, and you get a lot of pressure put on you um, mm. to 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 be an, an and then you know so an infinite oracle of information and ux patterns that you mm -hmm. know all of them instantly and when they're all applicable and it's hard it's hard all this exactly yeah to, to be honest the other points they have about forms actually are for me are not specifically mobile uh, they have to do with uh, uh, error messages uh, having address validator or address lookup and marking required and optional fields i'm i'm betting all those would be similar on the desktop website so for me it's not like well that's specific to mobile no absolutely not the required and optional that's a really good one yeah. I, I really recommend people to search more about that if you don't know much about it because um it, it's it's a really nice pattern where you highlight the things that are optional rather than highlight the things that are required so you flip the form yeah although they're recommending you do both but um but um, i know that optional is something that's pushed as a um as a more um well, it's a more, more more usable way of dealing with forms in many situations. Exactly. My go-to design now, I'm going to be reveal how it is, but I actually put optional in parentheses behind the, the label. That's my go-to. Yeah. Then, of course, you have to test that and work up. So it's not the always the solution, but it's it gives an example of how you possibly could do it if you're not doing it that already. And just f finishing off on, on that article, I just want to mention that uh, even those that are mobile site-wide feature elements, they actually apply sort of to ac accessibility as well. Uh, not providing load indicators, which means that people actually don't know what is happening as they're waiting for content loads. For example, when you type in a search engine and press search, is it, is it doing anything? Is, is, are the search results going to come up? You have no idea because there's no nothing indicating that something is going on behind the scenes. And the other one is placing tappable elements too close to each other uh, and too small and too small yes as yeah. well and we have an entire show about this don't we we do Tar <laughs> target size exactly so lots of lots of uh, good stuff to to i mean just go through that list and and start talking in your teams about what are we th not thinking about uh, I, i'm pretty sure there are lots of insights that that will come up uh, given given the percentages, they say, you know, 
uh, are mediocre or don't um, live up to all these points. Um, I mean, you you might argue that we you know who are who are Bama to say that we should be doing these. Um, yeah. But they're they're a great resource and they're doing a lot of research. Um, yeah. And they're not saying you shouldn't test yourself. Um, exactly. But they are doing a lot of um, testing and they're sharing a lot of it for free. Yes, they've got even more that you have to pay for, but um, mm. but they do share an awful lot um, for free, and it's mm. an, it's an excellent resource. And I, I mean that's always the disclaimer. I mean these are all good points, but it's it's more ideas. These are things that you should look out for and test yourself. And so it's ideas of what could possibly be going wrong. Recommended listening. Now I've already just mentioned um, target size. Um, which um, ooh, I mean, you, it's normally me that remembers the episode numbers of those pairs, so I um, I can't remember the episode number of two forty-five. You've oh, target size. Oh, no, uh, sorry, t- two sixty-six. Two forty-five is the one that I actually pre-prepared as recommended <laughs> listening yes, exactly. for this one. That was the one I was looking at the card I was reading. Yeah, <laughs> that's cognitive bias with um, David Dylan Thomas. Right. So now we've got we've got one recommended episode for each of the articles. Two four yes, two four five yes. for um, the first article we talked about, and mm. two six six for mm. this one we've just talked about. And remember, if you want to get in on uh, the action of watching us record a show in front of a live studio audience, and you want to be in the audience, uh, re- remember that we are doing the Ambition and Power track. And check out and search for Ambition and Power UX podcast. Uh, look at that, and uh, if you use the code UX podcast you might get something off. You will. (laughs) (laughs) Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. What do you get when multiplication, division, addition, and subtraction don't shower for a month? Oh my God. I don't know, James. What do you get when multiplication, addition, division, and subtraction don't shower for a month? The order of operations. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Was that too wow. geeky? That is very geeky. Oh, I'm not, yeah. Does everyone get that? No. <laughs> <sighs>